Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you today. Hope that you've come to uh, experience God's love because He certainly wants to love on you because He cares for you. If you've ever run a distance race, and I realize some of you have and some of you haven't, but I'm like a marathon, uh, there's phases of those races. Uh, I've, I've done one marathon in my life. And when you come there, everybody's real excited. You know, you've trained, you prepared for this moment, you got your little number on your shirt, you're, you're all set to go. And, and uh, at this particular race, there was a couple thousand people and, you know, and everybody's equal and everybody's the same. And then we start and then you realize everybody's not equal and the same. Uh, uh, <laughs> some of us are back in the back of the pack. But uh, you begin the race and it's, it's joyous, you know, the sun's shining, your heart's beating. It's just, you plan for this, it's, it's exciting. But there comes a point in the race where it changes. Sometimes it's several miles in. A marathon, it might be at the 20-mile mark or the 21-mile mark. If you're not in very good shape, it might be at the 500-yard mark, you know. <laughs> but all of a sudden, every step becomes drudgery. And you think, can I take one more step? I, I want to finish this race. I remember when I ran my marathon, it was on a Sunday. And I skipped church to, to, to run that race. So I, I had to finish, you know, and I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? It was, you know, it was, it was drudgery. Runners call that the wall. And it's at the wall that races are won and lost, uh, finished or abandoned, you know. The desire to quit is enormous at that time. The, the start of the race is enjoyable. You know, it's exciting. It's easy. But finishing the race is hard. It's ending well that's the glory. Finishing well is what really counts. So what is the wall in our human experience? If you're not a runner, what's the wall in the human experience? I believe the wall is at the point of shattered dreams, at the point of the pain in our lives. In my first pastorate, 23 years old, had shared all of my wisdom quickly, <laughs> and then uh, I'm trying to, to survive each week for a while. And I remember that the week for me went in two phases of anxiety. From Monday to Wednesday, my anxiety was I had to do the Wednesday night Bible study. And in this little church of about, when I started out about 50 people, there were nine or 10 retired ministers in the church. And so I'm leading them a Bible study. And so you know, I'm petrified every Wednesday night. As soon as that was over, before I could hardly breathe a sigh of relief, the anxiety level for Thursday to late Saturday night started to have a sermon for Sunday. And it was petrifying to me. And I remember in that second phase of anxiety on a Thursday night, Cal called. He was the chairman of my trustee board. He said, Pastor, you need to come quickly. A 15-year-old boy from our church has hung himself in his parents' garage. In my years of seminary, they didn't give me the manual to tell me what to say at that particular moment. Forty-plus years later in ministry, I'm, I'm still looking for that manual. I've thought about all the, pe I thought about all the people that I've known uh, who have had their dreams shattered and their lives shattered, and there's lots of them. I thought about a 33-year-old mother. Uh, she had just adopted, she and her husband had adopted two little girls from Japan, beautiful girls. 
And one of the girls they discovered had cancer, and we were really concerned. She went through treatment, came out fine, did wonderful. But in the course of that treatment, they did an exam on the mom, and she had cervical cancer, and it was advanced. And I remember sitting by her bedside, and I saw that desperate question in her eyes I've seen so many times, what's going to happen to my girls? What happens now? What do I do when my dreams are shattered? I thought about Jim and Karen. They were people in my first church I pastor. I've known them for over 40 years. Great folks. And they were coming to retirement age, and they bought a little log cabin in Tennessee that they've been fixing up for the last few years. And they'd just been up there fixing the cabin. They're on their way back to Florida and in Macon, Georgia, on Highway uh, US 75. Uh, you know how that traffic is around there. It lines up. There's always construction going on. And so they're stopped. A trailer truck can't stop. Slams into their car, shoves them into the concrete abutment. Karen's okay. She's shaking up, but she's okay. Jim breaks his neck and snaps his spinal, spinal cord, paralyzed from the neck down. And all of a sudden, Karen is with Jim in the middle of COVID. Friends can't come into the hospital in a place they don't know. And Karen uh, messaged Brenda and talked to her about, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. The list goes on and on. Max Licato calls it the fog of the broken heart. You peer desperately into the future and you can't see it. You, you don't know how it's going to work out. Carlo Corretto calls it the dark night of the soul. Whatever you call it, all of us have or will experience it at some point in our lives. You have a great job. Your pension's looking pretty good, and then the market crashes, and all of a sudden you're in trouble and you get laid off. You know? Your life made of 50 years, you celebrate that wonderful anniversary, and then suddenly they're gone, and you're alone. People who once had dreams, they're now trapped in a world of desperation and frustration, sense of hopelessness. John Ortberg writes that suffering always changes us, but it doesn't always change us for the better. Sometimes it doesn't. For the past eight weeks, we've been looking at healing choices, choices that we make that help us become the person God wants us to be, help us discover his purpose for our life, and help us to become the witness that he desires for us to be. And today's healing choice, the last one, is one of the most important ones. It's the choice to share my story, to share my story of pain, to share my story of brokenness so that someone else can find the hope that I've found in Christ and the difference that he makes. Our scripture, the last beatitude, is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed or happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The big truth that I want you to take home today is God does not waste our hurt. He doesn't. He doesn't waste our hurt if we surrender it to Him. But the big truth also raises a big question. 
Why does God allow pain and suffering in the first place? That's, that's one of the major questions. If you've ever tried to lead somebody to Christ, what's one of the first things they say to you? How can a good God allow this to happen to my grandfather or this happened? And, you know, how can God allow pain and suffering in the world? Adversity is no respecter of persons, is it? Steve Jobs, multi-billionaire, founder of Apple, still could not buy off pancreatic cancer. It's the great leveler for all of us. In the, in the cemetery, there's no sign saying, this was my net worth. It didn't matter. You know, we all have that, that same thing. The question of the why of suffering is always one that must be confronted in our life of faith. It's important to know something about that. And there are several reasons. Some of them are quite obvious. The issue of free will. The Bible says that God created man in his own image. Out of all of the amazing creation, you and I were created in the image of God. God had a love relationship with us. He wanted to have a love relationship with us from the very beginning. Now, this is the problem. You can't love without a choice. I can't demand you to love me. You know, you have to choose that. You know, you, you, he could have made us so that we were absolutely perfect in our choices, but we would also have been puppets. And he wants us to have a relationship with him. So there always has to be the right to make a decision. When God gave us the choice to love him and let us love him, he also gave us the ability to make choices and decisions, and we call that free will. Without it, there's no real love relationship. Free will comes with a blessing. You get to choose to love God. It also comes with the problem. Many times we choose wrong and we make wrong decisions. And God will not overrule our choices, at least not in this world. He will not force you to love him. Now, Philippians says that there will be a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But we're not at that day right now. So right now you have a choice on whether or not to love him. God doesn't send anyone to hell. He doesn't. But he allows you to choose a path that takes you down a wrong path if you reject his purpose and his will for your life. Much of the pain that you and I suffer, we can easily understand it's bad choices we've made. You know, if you decide to drive 90 miles an hour and your tire blows out and you wreck, that was a bad choice uh, that you made. And uh, sometimes we fail to follow God's plan, and that's a bad choice, and we call it sin. And the Bible tells us that in Romans that all of us have sinned and come short of God's glory. However, some suffering is the result of others failing to choose God's plan. You see, there's some folks that fail to choose God's plan, and because of their failure, we suffer. We go through that pain. That's what happened to Jim. He's just parked his, he's just in his car on the interstate, and all of a sudden, somebody plows into him, made a bad decision. God uses our pain to get our attention. It's interesting how that works. One of my uh, scriptures I want you to see this morning is a, a great one. It's in Jonah 2.7. It says, when I had lost all hope, I turned my thoughts once more to the Lord. It's funny how that happens, isn't it? <laughs> when we lose hope, where's God? We turn our attention to the Lord. God doesn't cause our pain. 
but he'll use our pain to get our attention. You know, when you're on a mountaintop and it's easy to praise God and, you know, you can be in church and we're singing these songs and, you know, God's been good to me and we're, we're just so grateful. And that's wonderful. But what I've discovered is that often I hear God's voice most clearly in the shadow of the valley when it's dark and I'm alone and I need to hear from God. Just as your body gives you warning signals, you got a pain in your arm, you got a hacking cough, you got shortness of breath, that tells you you, you might have something going on, you might ought to see a doctor. The pain in our lives is used by God to remind us that we need to pay attention to Him. We need to listen to Him. Without Him, we have a problem. Our pain teaches us to depend on God. Of all of our healing choices, perhaps the one that we must learn over and over again is the very first one we talked about eight weeks ago. We're not God. We're not God. Maybe that's why Jesus told his followers on that hillside, happy are the persecuted because theirs is the kingdom of God. Sometimes when our life is full of fluff and everything's going great in our life, God is kind of somewhere out there in our minds, but not in our hearts. But when everything gets stripped away and all you have left is God, and that's all that matters, that really is all that matters. That's the most important thing. Ben Patterson, uh, one of my favorite writers, makes an interesting statement about prayer. He said, perhaps one of the reasons God delays in his answers to our prayer is because he knows we need to be with him far more than we need the answer. Think about that. We might need to be with God in prayer more than we need our prayers answered. You know, we God, I need this, this, and this. And God just says, you need to be with me. And this didn't come out of an academic setting for Ben Patterson. Ben Patterson planted a church in the late 60s, early 70s in Irvine, California. And he went out there. He was going to change the world. Uh, he, he wanted to make the church culturally relevant in a crazy society. It was kind of crazy in Southern California in the late 60s, early 70s. It, it kind of still is today, but it, it really was then. And so, you know, he goes out there and he starts this church and he's been pastoring for about seven years. And then he gets two ruptured discs in his back and he's flat on his back and he goes to the doctor and he goes, okay, you got six weeks that you can't do anything. You just got to lay and take medication, and then we'll decide if we have to do surgery. And the only place he could be comfortable was laying flat on his back on the floor. And he loved to read, but because of his medications, he couldn't focus very well with his eyes. And so basically, he felt like he was useless to the church. He goes, what can I do? So he asked his wife to bring him the church directory, and he started praying through the directory for each family every day. That process would take him two hours every day. And when he was finally getting better and ready to go back to work, he was talking to the Lord. And he said, Lord, I'm really going to miss our time together. It's been, it's been sweet to have that just uninterrupted time and to just be able to talk to you about all these people in the church. But now I've got to get back to work. I'm going to be busy. And he said the Lord spoke to him and said, stupid. That's, that's what he said. 
then it's stupid. You have the same 24 hours in your day when you were lying on your back and when you're going back to work. The difference is when you go back to work, you feel like you're in charge. When you're sick, you know that I'm in charge. And that's what we need to learn. God uses our pain to remind us that we must depend on him. But it's the the last part that kind of amazes me. God uses our pain to help others. He uses our pain to help others. That may be the most surprising thing about pain to me. God never wastes our pain if we surrender it to him. One of my favorite Bible characters is in the Old Testament. His name is Joseph. You may remember Joseph. He's one of 12 brothers, and he was the favorite. Now, his parents were taught you're not supposed to have favorite kids, but obviously Joseph's father, he was his favorite. He made him this beautiful coat, and the brothers weren't really happy about it. And then Joseph wasn't the brightest guy in the world. He had this dream about his brothers and his dad bowing down to him, and he told them the dream. You know, just keep it to yourself. But he told, that really made the brothers mad. And they wanted to kill him. There's one brother that had a little better idea. He goes, let's, let's not kill him, let's sell him. You know, at least get a little money for the deal. And so he, he gets sold into slavery in Egypt. For a while he does well. And then you remember he had the whole thing with Potiphar's wife and her false accusations. He ends up in prison. While in prison, he interprets some dreams and, you know, and he tells them, go, go tell them, remember me, tell them who told you the interpretation, the correct interpretation. But then it's, it's interesting what it says. After a period of time. That's so true of God. Often when we pray, there's a period of time. There's a waiting time before God answers our prayers. And so... There's a waiting time. He finally gets set free. He becomes the second most powerful guy in Egypt. There's a huge famine, kind of like a, a, the Great Depression. And for the first time, he's in a position where he can get even with his brothers. Because everybody's starving, and they're all coming to Egypt to get food. There's this reoccurring theme in Joseph's life. God doesn't prevent him from being hurt. He gets hurt a bunch of times. But God does provide opportunities to use his hurt. The amazing thing is that Joseph doesn't surrender to bitterness and anger as many of us might. Instead, he traces God's hand in his path. Listen to these verses. God sent me ahead of you in Genesis 45.5. And then it says in Genesis 45.8, It was not you who sent me here, but God. In other words, you had nothing to do with this. Your brothers, or you may think you've caused this, but no, this was God's doing. And then the key verse is in chapter 50, verse 20, that says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Most people I've discovered are not impressed by our power and expertise. You know, how many degrees do you have? How much wealth do you have? And we try to wow people. What I discover is most people are touched by our brokenness 
and our honest stories. When we say, this is who I was, this is what happened to me, and this is how God redeemed me. There's something powerful about that testimony. That's why it's so important that we learn to share our redeeming story from God. Even if it's not finished yet. Even if you're still in the broken part of it, as most of us are at some point. When I arrived in Monroe City, a little town in southern Indiana, a year ago, where I was uh, the TIPS pastor, I was there for a year. Monroe City is one of these really hot spots in the world. Uh, there's not a stop sign, and there's not a stop light, and there's 500 people in this town. There wasn't even a restaurant. There was a gas station that served hamburgers. That was a good thing. But in this little town, the church that I served was the biggest church. They had about 200 people. It was a beautiful building. And they told me, we're going to have a Bible school. And the Bible school is going to be the week after public school lets out. And it's going to be from 4 to 6.30 in the afternoon. I'm thinking two bad things here. Look, right after school lets out, all the parents want to go on vacation. You know, they've been, you know, they want to take off. And 4 to 6.30, that's right during people get off work and they're fixing dinner. Can't think of a worse time to have a Bible school. And they said, and expect 100 kids. There's 500 people in the town. And so I'm thinking, you're crazy. And I was right. It wasn't 100 kids, it was 150 kids. You know, they came out of the woodwork. I couldn't believe it. And I was so amazed at how organized this Bible school was and how well it was done. But I was especially impressed with, uh, they had an animal theme. And so they had these five animals that were carved out of plywood and hand-painted. They were beautiful. And uh, they're really works of art. And I discovered that all these animals were done by this gal you see up on the screen. She's in front of the rhinoceros that led you into this sanctuary. And uh, Katrina made these uh, beautiful, beautiful artwork. Uh, and her husband told me how this happened. He goes, in January, she takes over my garage. And she gets the plywood, takes all of my plywood, and she, car she uses a jigsaw and cuts out these animals. And then she hand paints them all. And she does a different set every year for Bible school. I mean, it was amazing stuff. But what was even more amazing was Katrina's story. Katrina had cystic fibrosis. And when she was in her early 20s, she had a double lung transplant. I'd never met a double lung transplant. And when she got home from her transplant, within a few weeks, she and her husband adopted their first of two beautiful children that they've adopted, one of them she's holding there. Every few months, Katrina has to travel to St. Louis from Monroe City to have her blood checked, to have her breathing function checked. And during flu seasons and those kinds of times, she has to be incredibly careful because any kind of infection or stuff could you know, really hurt her with, with her lungs. And so this time of year with this virus is extremely dangerous. And I was amazed to find out that once again, she made the props for the, for the Bible school and had them ready. And she told me that uh, when she went to St. Louis to have her blood checked, uh, one day a helicopter was landing on top of the roof of the hospital just as she was walking in. And she goes, it was a flashback to realize that just a few years ago, a young man gave 
his organs that allowed five people to live. And I was one of those five people. And she said once again that she thanked God for the gift of life and the opportunity to serve him. I got to confess to you, my eyes teared up as I was listening to her tell this story. She wasn't angry. She wasn't bitter that she had citrus fibrosis or that she had double lung transplant that she had to go be checked on all the time. She was so grateful that she could be a mom and that she could serve God using the skills and the talents that he had given her. Phil Yancey, in his powerful book, Disappointed with God, shares about interviewing Douglas. Douglas was a very successful guy, and uh, he felt called to ministry, not just any ministry, to urban ministry among the poorest of the poor. And so they started this ministry, and as they're having the ministry, uh, his wife gets sick. She has a lump in her breast. They discover she has breast cancer. She can't keep food down. She loses her hair. It was just a really hard, hard time. And one day, his wife and his daughter and he are driving, and a drunk driver hits them. His wife is okay. She's shaken up. His daughter breaks her arm. But Douglas hits the steering wheel of the car and has severe brain trauma. Uh, He never knows when headaches are going to strike. They can come at any moment. He couldn't work a full work day anymore. Sometimes he was disoriented. He got forgetful. He had to have assistance going up the stairs. Uh, all of his life, he's loved books, and, but as he couldn't focus. He had double vision, so he could only read a page or two at a time. So when Phil Yancey went to see him with his book, Disappointed with God, he expected to find a guy really disappointed with God. And he was shocked that that wasn't true. This is what he said. I don't feel any disappointment with God, with my wife's illness, the accident, my physical problems. I've learned not to confuse God with life. I'm no stoic. I get angry and curse the darkness, all the stuff that has happened to me and my family and the unfairness of it and the grief and the anger. But I've convinced that my God is also angry at what's happened to me and the pain that I've gone through. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair, but God is not life. It's an interesting statement. You say, but God is life. He made us and he gave us life. Yes, but our experience here is separate from that. Someday we will have eternal life with God. I like what it says in Genesis. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? There will come a day that God will do right by everybody. But aren't you grateful that it won't be fair? You don't want it to be fair. You want it to be grace. We don't want what we deserve. We want what he gives us because of his amazing grace to us. You see, God has the power and the love to heal us. And if he chooses to heal you in a physical way or an emotional way or a financial way, it's not because he loves you more than everybody else. And if he doesn't do it, it's not because he loves you less than anybody else. God's concern is not with what you're going through at this moment. God's preparing you for the bigger moment. You see, this is dress rehearsal for life as God sees it, because God sees life eternally, not just this little segment of time that 70, 80, 90 years that we spend here. God can recycle your pain to bless others. You have a story to tell 
And you can choose to ignore your pain. You can allow your heart to be bitter about your pain. Or you can release your pain to God and allow Him to use it to bless someone else's life and to encourage them as what they're going through. I pray that you will allow God to use your story to bless others. The world has far more people who are hurting that need to hear good news than we have people who are willing to share their broken stories and their good news. When I first went to South Daytona at uh, White Chapel, there was a young girl there that worked in our office, sweet girl, loving, caring, and she shared with me that she was going to be sharing her testimony with a women's group at church. And I thought, well, I want to hear what she's got to say. So I stood at the door. And I didn't want to invade all those women. But I stood at the door and listened to the story. And I was shocked. She shared a story of brokenness, a story of abuse as a young girl uh, by a family member and, and all the pain and suffering that she went through. And I'm thinking, Wow. I never knew that because her life was one of joy and happiness and care for others. She had recycled her pain and she had used it to bless other people. And she shared her story to help other folks who were going through rough things to remind them that God can take our pain and heal it and redeem it and use it for his glory. And I thought about another person who was righteous, who didn't deserve what he got. He didn't deserve his pain. He didn't deserve his mistreatment. He didn't deserve his friends deserting him. He didn't deserve a painful death. His name was Jesus. Jesus knows about your pain because he's experienced it. He's lived it. And he's overcome it. And through him, you can overcome whatever's happening in your life. And God can take it and redirect it and repurpose it to encourage and bless and strengthen others who desperately need to know Him. Would you pray with me? Lord, there may be some folks here today that may need Your healing power in their lives. Healing from old hurts, healing from disappointments, healing from pain and suffering and depression, healing from sin. May today be the first of many healing choices that they make. And perhaps today there are those who need to share your story of how you have redeemed their pain and brought healing to them. You never waste our pain if we give it to you. So don't waste it today, Lord. Use it for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's take this time to respond to what God's been saying to us, both individually and as a church. Let's go ahead and stand.
is you the center of our story is you and Lord may we tell our stories boldly and proudly all the scars and the hurts and the wounds and all so that we can be a testimony to others Lord oh Lord help us not to get so discouraged by life uh, to question who you are and what you've done for us Lord, thank you for the choice uh, that we have to allow you to heal us and redeem us and deliver us out of darkness into your glorious light. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. And we thank you for who we are and who are we and who we are becoming in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you, church.